Hello, my name is Professor Zimmermann. I'm a professor of international law at the University of Potsdam in Germany. And it's my pleasure to speak on the voting in the Security Council today to you. The Security Council of the United Nations bears the primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security under Article 24 of the Charter of the United Nations. The Council is also vested with the power to issue binding decisions on member states of the United Nations, including the authorization of the use of force under Chapter 7. Considering these powers of the Security Council, voting in the Council has been a highly political issue ever since its creation. It is especially the so-called veto power of its permanent members which has, during the Cold War already, led to an almost complete deadlock in the work of the Security Council, which fact in turn has directed various criticisms and suggestions for improvement. In order to understand the work of the Security Council, it is first and foremost important to understand the legal background of the voting in the Council. The relevant provision in this respect is Article 27 of the United Nations Charter. Article 27 is divided into three paragraphs. While the first paragraph merely states the almost obvious, namely that every member of the Security Council has one vote, paragraphs 2 and 3 deal with the requirements for the adoption of a decision by the Security Council. Article 27 of the Charter constitutes a compromise between the wish to abolish the failures of the voting procedures of the League of Nations, on the one hand, and the wish of the so-called sponsoring powers at the time, China, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and the United States, to retain the highest degree of influence possible on the decision-making process in the Council on the other. Within the League of Nations, quote, except where otherwise expressly provided, decisions of, at any meeting of the main League organs required the agreement of all the members of, leagues of the League represented at the meeting, unquote. This ability of every member state to block decisions of uh, organs of the Council, including the Council of the League of Nations, made the decision process in the organization extremely difficult. Article 27 of the Charter of the United Nations must thus be understood as a deliberate attempt to limit such ability. During the drafting process of the UN Charter, the issue of voting in the Council was a topic of heavy discussion. Even though no agreement was found as to the question of the voting procedure in the Security Council during the Dumbleton Oaks Conference, it became clear that against the background of the experience within the League of Nations, there was at least a general agreement that, as a matter of principle, and subject to the issue of specific voting powers of the future permanent members of the Security Council, the Treaty, the Charter of the United Nations, should provide for majority voting in the Council. This led to an agreement on a majority requirement of seven affirmative votes of the then, at the time, 11 members of the future Security Council. This majority was raised to nine affirmative votes in 1963, when the number of members of the Security Council was raised from 11 to 15. Shortly after the Dumbarton Oaks Conference, the Soviet Union, the United States and the United Kingdom gathered at the conference at Yalta, in whose course they adopted a formula concerning the voting procedure in the Security Council, providing that decisions on all non-procedural matters shall be adopted not only with nine affirmative votes,
but also with the concurring votes of the designated permanent members. In reply to a questionnaire submitted by the San Francisco Conference, the so-called sponsoring powers adopted the so-called San Francisco Declaration, which ought to be considered of crucial importance and relevance to understand Article 27 of the Charter as it now stands. In said declaration of the four sponsoring powers, they made it abundantly clear that the acceptance of the Yalta formula, as enshrined and explained in their statement, formed the condition conditio sine qua non for their acceptance of the Charter, which in turn constituted a condition sine qua non for the Charter to become a political reality. This San Francisco Declaration contained two important ideas. First, the sponsoring powers took the position that while decisions on procedural matters should be adopted by a simple majority, this rule should be subject to what was called a chain of events theory. Second, the sponsoring powers claimed that the decision regarding the preliminary question as to whether or not a matter is procedural must be taken by a vote of seven members of the Security Council, including the concurring votes of the permanent members, thus already foreshadowing in their declaration the system of the so-called double veto. As stated, Article 27 applies to all decisions of the Security Council and furthermore distinguishes between procedural matters on the one hand, to which paragraph 2 applies, and which are therefore not subject to the veto, and all other matters, which are dealt with by paragraph 3 of Article 27. It is therefore important to clarify first the terms decision and procedural matters. The term decisions, which is to be found in several provisions of the United Nations Charter, does not constitute a terminus technicus which, with an ex ante fixed content. However, as may be discerned, for example, from Article 18, paragraph 2, the term is rather broad and may also encompass recommendations, actions as to membership, as well as budgetary questions. Moreover, as Article 48 of the Charter refers to, quote, decisions for the maintenance of international peace and security, unquote, it presupposes, Article 48 presupposes, that decisions are not necessarily linked with this purpose, as otherwise the addition of the words, quote, for the maintenance of peace and security, unquote, would be redundant. Such a wide and broad understanding of the term decision is also confirmed by the wording and drafting history of Article 27 of the Charter, as well as by the subsequent practice of the Council, and thus includes resolutions, presidential statements, procedural decisions taken at Security Council meetings, as well as decisions contained in notes or letters by the President, all of which are then reported in the series of the Council called, quote, Resolutions and Decisions of the Security Council, end quote. Even more important, however, is the definition of the term procedural matters. As it, on, as it is only decisions on such uh, issues, on procedural matters, that do not require the concurrence of the five permanent members under Article 27, Paragraph 2 of the Charter. Neither the Charter itself nor the provisional rules of procedure of the Council offer a definition of the term. The practice of the Security Council shows that the qualification of an issue as a procedural matter is done on a case-by-case -case basis. This approach, however, raises the important question 
of who is in a position to decide eventually the preliminary question of what constitutes a procedural matter. Neither the Charter at large nor the Security Council rules of procedure address this question. As mentioned, the San Francisco Declaration to which I had referred earlier took the position that the, the preliminary question as to whether or not a matter is procedural must be taken by a vote of seven, today nine, members of the Security Council, including the concurring votes of the permanent members. This leads to the conclusion that it is paragraph three of Article 27 which applies to the preliminary question and the ensuing practice of what has ever since 1946 been called the system of the double veto. However, as there are areas which are beyond doubt procedural in nature, the double veto can reasonably only apply to situations where genuine doubts exist as to whether a matter constitutes a procedural or a substantive one. Anything else would render the provision of, of Article 27 paragraph 2 meaningless as a permanent member could de facto veto any procedural question by merely qualifying it as a non-procedural one. A conclusion that is confirmed by the subsequent practice of the Security Council itself. It should be noted, however, that the importance of this system of a double veto, which I just explained, has diminished over time. <clears throat> the system of the double veto has not been used since 1959 due to an informal agreement among the permanent members as to certain issues to be qualified as being procedural in character, while others would in turn be considered as non-procedural. This leads me now to Article 27, Paragraph 3, which governs the procedure for the adoption of most of the decisions of the Security Council and which requires that the nine affirmative votes include the concurring votes of the permanent members of the Security Council, amounting to a veto right of those five permanent members. This raises the question of what legal effect either an abstention or the absence by one or more of the permanent members has on the validity of a draft resolution which otherwise has gathered nine or more affirmative votes. While the wording of Article 27 is inconclusive on the matter, the object and purpose of Article 27, Paragraph 3, which is to prevent Security Council decisions from being taken against the will of one or more of the permanent members, since such a decision would eventually lead to a confrontation between the permanent members, this, <coughs> this interpretation favors considering abstentions as not amounting to a veto, since a permanent member could at any time cast a negative vote, instead of abstaining, thereby avoiding such a confrontation. This interpretation of an abstention not amounting to the veto is also confirmed by the subsequent practice of the Council itself. Permanent members have abstained in voting uh, for, for quite some time without this ever being considered uh, as a bar for a resolution to be adopted. What is more is that Article 27 was subject to a revision in the early 1960s. Despite the fact that all members of the organization were fully aware at that time of the by then well-established practice of, practice of abstentions by permanent members not preventing a Security Council resolution from passing, no effort whatsoever was made to change this understanding when amending Article 27. 
This interpretation was also explicitly confirmed by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, in its advisory opinion in the Namibia case in 1971. Accordingly, once any nine Security Council members having positively voted in favor of resolution and no permanent member having casted a negative vote, even where one or more of the permanent members have abstained, such a resolution is validly adopted and is thus legally binding within the meaning of Article 25 of the Charter. The very same considerations that apply to the abstention of a permanent member also apply mutatis mutandis to a permanent member present during the session in question but refraining from voting at all. The next question that arises is whether similar considerations apply where a permanent member is completely absent from the session in question. In contrast to the matter of abstention, no consistent practice has evolved in that regard. One might, however, assume that a permanent member who is voluntarily absent thereby indicates its wish not to prevent substantive decisions being taken by the Council, which it could otherwise prevent by simply participating in the meeting and casting a negative vote and, accordingly, does not hinder the Security Council from making decisions either. While paragraph 3 of Article 27 provides the permanent members with the power to veto most of the important decisions of the Security Council, it, it likewise mitigates this power by stating that in decisions under Chapter 6 and under paragraph 3 of Article 52, a party to a dispute shall abstain from voting. In this regard, it constitutes permanent practice of the Security Council to consider a member which has abstained according to clause 2 of paragraph 3 as not having participated in the vote, comparable to a situation in which it has voluntarily abstained where it could have casted a positive or negative vote. Concerning the range of decisions to which a permanent member or other member must abstain from voting, clause 2 of paragraph 3 of article 27 mentions decisions, quote, under chapter 6, unquote, of the Charter. The obligation to abstain applies thus to all measures expressly provided for in articles 33, 34, 36 and 38 of the Charter, including the preliminary questions that are inherent in decisions based on uh, Chapter 6 as such. In particular, and given its main object and purpose, the obligation of members which are party to a dispute to abstain does not apply to any measures taken by the Security Council under Chapter 7 and thus does neither apply to recommendations under Article 39 nor to provisional measures under Article 40 of the Charter. Another aspect of the duty to abstain regarding decisions under Chapter 6 to which a member of the Security Council is a party concerns proceedings before the ICJ. In this regard, various situations must be distinguished. For one, the obligation to abstain clearly applies to recommendations to refer a legal dispute to the ICJ under Article 36, Paragraph 2 of the Charter. This provision forming part of Chapter 6. 
To the contrary, it does not apply concerning the enforcement of decisions against the permanent member of the Council under Article 94, Paragraph 2 of the Charter, as this entails exactly the kind of risks of a confrontation of the organization at large with one of the Security Council's five permanent members that Article 27, Paragraph 3, Clause 2 was meant to avoid at the first place. Concerning requests for advisory opinions under Article 96, Paragraph 1, one has to note that the power of the Council to request advisory opinions was deliberately moved to Chapter 14, which means that without any ensuing changes in the text of what is now Article 27, Paragraph 3, requests under Article 96, Paragraph 1 for an advisory opinion by the Court are not covered by the wording of Article 27, Paragraph 3. Parallel to measures under Chapter 6, Article 27, Paragraph 3, Clause 2 further provides that in decisions under Article 52, Paragraph 3, a party to a dispute shall similarly abstain since such decisions, while being based on Article 52 and limited to local disputes, entail the range of measures provided for in Article 36, Paragraph 3. Accordingly, mutatis mutandis, the very same considerations apply as to measures taken exclusively under Chapter 6. Article 27, Paragraph 3 requires for its application a prior twofold determination by the Council, namely that a dispute exists and that one or more of its members are involved as parties to such a dispute. In this respect, it is crucial to distinguish between the terms dispute on the one hand and situation on the other which are, as the very structure of Chapter 6 confirms, mutually exclusive. Situations and disputes are mutually exclusive. It is only with respect to the former, to disputes, that a member of the Council is obliged to abstain. As the obligation to abstain only applies to members of the Council which are parties to the disputes under consideration, the question arises of who is in the position to decide who the parties to a given dispute are. In order to avoid the danger of a possible abuse of the notion of dispute under Article 27, it seems that the existence of a dispute between two states is a matter of objective determination and accordingly it is not sufficient for one party to assert that there is a dispute in which another state is involved. Rather, it must be shown that a disagreement on a point of law or fact, a conflict of legal views or of interests exists between the members of the Council which are supposed to be under an obligation to abstain. As is obvious from the very text of Article 27, Paragraph 3, the obligation to abstain is limited to the categories of decisions explicitly listed in the provision and does therefore, per se, not apply to procedural matters. Here too issues arise, namely, whether the decision to determine whether a question is a dispute or not and provided a dispute exists, the determination whether a member of the Council was a party to such, such dispute, and finally the decision whether a decision is to be made under Chapter 6 or Article 52, Paragraph 3 or not, constitute procedural matters or not. Concerning the first question, one should note that if the decision whether a certain set of circumstances constitutes a situation 
rather than a dispute, were to be considered a substantive issue within the meaning of Clause 2, any of the permanent members of the Council could block a decision that it is a dispute, with the result that the circumstances would have to be qualified as mere situation, so that they would then not have to abstain and could thus veto any further substantive decisions. This would render Clause 2 of Article 27, Paragraph 3 a dead letter, as far as the Security Council's permanent members are concerned, since, since the veto could be applied in every case regardless of it being a situation or a dispute. It is for this reason that the system of the double veto must here find its inherent limit. Similar considerations must apply, mutatis mutandis, to the determination of the parties to a given dispute. If such determination were to be qualified as a non-procedural matter, any permanent member of the Council could prevent the determination that it itself is a party to a dispute and would then not be under an obligation to abstain. Regarding the last question as to who determines the legal basis of a given Security Council decision, one has to remember that it was a deliberate decision made during the drafting process that the obligation to abstain was not to apply to other measures than those explicitly referred to in Clause 2 and in particular not to enforcement measures under what is now Chapter 7. The underlying idea being that no enforcement measures under Chapter 7 ought to be taken against any one of the permanent members against its will. Therefore, the fundamental decision underlying the system of collective security enshrined in the Charter would be, to, would be set aside provided a majority of the members of the Council could take measures under chapter, formally, formally take measures under Chapter 6 against the permanent member involved in the dispute, which de facto would constitute enforcement measures. Accordingly, the system of the double veto must apply to the question whether or not the Council is in a given situation, acting within the context of Chapter 6 or not, with the permanent members not being obliged to abstain on this preliminary question. It has been argued that the exercise of the veto, as enshrined in Article 27, by a permanent member may in certain circumstances be considered as an abus de droit. In particular, it has been claimed that the reliance on the double veto, the voluntary absence of a permanent member, the exercise of the veto by a permanent member, party to a dispute, or finally, where a Security Council member is under obligation to vote in a certain manner by virtue of other legally binding uh, obligations, represent abuses of the veto power. It has to be noted, however, that with regard to the issue of the double veto, whenever the issue concerned clearly constitutes a procedural matter, the preliminary question itself is inadmissible and the issue of the double veto does not arise as such. Similarly, in the case of voluntary absence by, the, by a permanent member, the Council is, as mentioned, not prevented from adopting valid decisions, the absence being considered as amounting to an abstention, but in a form which makes it impossible for a permanent member to thus abuse its position in this regard. As to Article 27, Paragraph 3, Clause 2, the issue of an alleged abus du, du veto does not arise either, provided one shares the view that a double veto does not apply to the pre-preliminary questions or whether certain circumstances amount to a dispute and who the parties to such dispute are, a question to which I've referred to earlier. Concerning the last issue as to whether substantive obligations of members restrict their voting rights in the Council, 
it is useful to first have a closer look at the broader question if and to what extent international law binds states voting in the Council. In this regard, it is important to note that all of the contracting parties of the Genocide Convention and of the four Geneva Conventions are subject to treaty-based obligations aiming at the prevention of violations by other states of the respective treaties to which they themselves are parties. With regard to genocide, the 2007 judgment of the International Court of Justice is relatively clear-cut. All states, regardless of any territorial link, but solely depending on their capacity to effectively influence the actual perpetrators of genocide, have to employ all means reasonably available, both de facto and de jure to them, so as to prevent genocide as far as possible. With regard to war crimes, it is particularly relevant to refer to common Article 1 of the four Geneva Conventions under which, quote, the high contracting parties undertake to respect and to ensure respect for the present Convention in all circumstances, end quote. As of today, all of the current members of the Council are contracting parties to these above-mentioned instruments and are thus subject to the treaty-based obligations to prevent the commission of the violation of international law outlined above, that is, genocide and war crimes. This is why one can conclude that when exercising their membership rights in the Security Council, states must fulfill their obligations under these instruments, which are owed, given their alga omnis character, to all other contracting parties of the respective treaties. There is no reason to assume that individual members of the Security Council are not bound by positive obligations to prevent certain violations of international law by third actors when voting in the Security Council. This does not mean, however, that members of the Council would have to vote for a certain resolution. Rather, to paraphrase the ICJ's holding in the Bosnian Genocide case of 2007, the obligation of members of the Council and the organ as a whole is to consider and eventually employ all means reasonably available so as to prevent inter alia the occurrence of acts of genocide and violations of the Geneva Conventions. Accordingly, responsibility under international law is incurred if a member of the Security Council manifestly fails to support or even delays possible Security Council measures aimed at preventing genocide and ensuring respect for the Geneva Conventions, which might have contributed to preventing such acts. This is particularly true in a situation where a regional organization within the meaning of Chapter 8 of the Charter is willing and able to act and requests the permission of the Security Council under Article 53, Paragraph 1 to take enforcement measures required by obligations such as the ones to prevent genocide or war crimes. This finally leads me to the last part of my presentation, discussing the most relevant proposals for a possible reform of the Security Council and conclude with an evaluation of the voting system under Article 27 of the Charter as it currently stands. The question as to a possible reform of Article 27 of the Charter focuses mainly on the issue of the veto of current and possibly future permanent members and the modalities of the exercise thereof. As the permanent members of the Security Council are unlikely to relinquish their veto power, proposals for reform 
tend to focus on limiting its effect. Suggestions in this respect include limiting the scope of the veto to decisions made under Chapter 7 of the Charter and nullifying the effect of a veto by one single permanent member of the Council. The latter could either be pursued by introducing, by way of a Charter amendment, a minimum number of two or more vetoes that must be reached before a decision can be blocked, or by introducing a mechanism for overruling a veto cast by just one member. Other, more recent suggestions from Member States include the introduction of an obligation to give reasons, at the very least, for the exercise of the veto, as well as a prohibition of the use of the veto in the event of genocide, crimes against humanity and serious violations of IHL, International Humanitarian Law. Even these less ambitious suggestions for reform seem, however, unlikely to be realized given express opposition of the five permanent members to any changes to the current veto structure. Today, the issue of reform of the veto is discussed mainly in the context of the expansion of the Security Council and in terms of whether any new permanent members, if ever there will be such, should have the power of veto. While several of the designated eventual new permanent members have indicated their potential willingness to abstain from claiming a veto right, with the result that in the lead-up to the World Summit in 2005, hopes had grown of a breakthrough in Security Council reform. The momentum came to a halt, also because the African Union adhered to its formal position that the veto right must be extended to any of the Security Council's new members. The following years saw the issue being resurrected in various forms and, in 2008, the General Assembly decided to begin intergovernmental negotiations on Security Council reform, which led, in 2010, to the presentation of a text by the Chair of the negotiations, including a myriad of proposals from Member States on the veto issue, among other issues, uh, questions. The non-aligned movement submitted that any reform of the Security Council, quote, should aim at limiting and curtailing the use of the veto with a view to its elimination, end quote. With the African group of states insisting that, as long as it exists, the veto right should be extended to all new permanent members of the Council, and with the United States reaffirming its opposition to any change in the veto structure. There is an indication, however, that the reform deadlock could be broken by postponing dealing with the question of the veto. In 2009, the President of the General Assembly hinted that Member States might be prepared to bypass substantial veto reform at this stage in order to facilitate development in other reform areas. This was deemed necessary in view of the limited span between what the current holders of the veto could accept and what the wider membership was seeking. This brings me to an evaluation of the voting procedure in the Council, as it currently stands. The voting system underlying Article 27 of the Charter continues to form the procedural bedrock of the system of collective security enshrined in the Charter. While one could debate the extent to which the current five members, permanent members, still represent the major powers of the world, it remains the case that they are endowed with a very significant formal position which enables them to exercise a decisive influence on the decision-making process in the Security Council in both 
a positive and a negative manner. Based on their individual veto power, in particular when combined with the system of the double veto, as outlined above, they may block almost any action to be taken by the Council when decisions under either Chapter 6 or Chapter 7 are being contemplated. Furthermore, and probably even more importantly, it is the function of the veto as a sort of Damocles, that means the fact that the explicit or implied threat of using the veto by a permanent member strongly influences the decision-making in the Council as a whole, in that the other members striving to have the Security Council adopt a given draft resolution have to decide for themselves between having their draft resolution being vetoed and thus not adopted, or amending their draft to an extent that it accommodates the political wishes of one or more of the permanent members threatening ex ante to exercise the veto. As Article 27 thus comprehensively affects the whole decision-making process of the Council, from the, from the first exchange of views on a certain issue through the whole process of consultations until the time a vote on a resolution is taken, the actual exercise of the veto by a permanent member constitutes only the tip of an iceberg. It should be stressed, however, that by formally submitting a draft resolution to the Council, the other members forming a numerical majority may at least force the permanent member concerned to cast their negative vote and thereby reveal their political isolation within the overall Security Council. It also to be mentioned that under the Uniting for Peace resolution of the GA, the General Assembly, any nine members of the Council may seize the General Assembly with a matter in cases in which the Security Council is blocked due to the veto and have the General Assembly take action, including, potentially, recomm recommending military action in case of a threat of the peace, breach of the peace or act of aggression. Yet, such threat to make use of the Uniting for Peace resolution seems to be realistic only where the majority within the Council can make a plausible claim that it would eventually be able to gather the necessary two-thirds majority within the General Assembly required by the Uniting for Peace resolution. Finally, when it comes to a permanent member of the Security Council exercising its veto in a situation falling within the scope of application of Article 39, that permanent member is also, with, also faced with the possible sanction, sanction of unilateral action being taken by either individual Security Council members or by a group of them, without the Council later being able to condemn such unilateral action as being illegal due to what I would call a reverse veto. The 1999 NATO Operation Allied Force against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia being a telling example. It should be noted, however, that besides enabling the permanent members of the Security Council to block decisions by the Council, the veto power also empowers the five permanent members to positively influence the outcome of Security Council decisions once they have reached, once they have reached an agreement on a certain question. They then only need to persuade four other members of the Council to bring about the adoption of a decision of the Council with the necessary nine votes. In that regard, it is particularly relevant that, due to the equitable geographical distribution within the Council, it usually contains a sufficient number of non-permanent members closely affiliated to one or more of the five permanent members, so as to enable them, as a group, to secure the necessary nine affirmative votes, including their five own votes. It must also be noted that, 
when it comes to questioning the voting system as such and thus endangering or limiting the veto, be it only marginally, the five permanent members have a common interest in protecting the existing status quo as enshrined in Article 27 and will thus normally stand united against any such attempt. It should furthermore be mentioned that the veto also plays a significant role in determining the scope of temporal application of Security Council resolutions, especially those adopted under Chapter 7 and providing for sanctions or related regimes. Thus, where, such as in the case of Security Council Resolution 1244 of 1999, relating to the international administration of Kosovo, the respective resolution does not contain, does not contain a temporal limitation or provides for its automatic prolongation, any of the five permanent members may ensure that the regime, once established, continues sine die by vetoing any resolution terminating it. In contrast, where the original resolution is limited in time, the veto enables any of the permanent members to prevent a prolongation. Finally, that this inclination of permanent members to explicitly make reference to Chapter 7, combined with their veto power, uh, have led in the past to formulas being used in Security Council resolutions that cause significant uncertainties as to the content and legal effect of those resolutions, e.g. where the Security Council either omitted to determine the existence of a situation under 39 or acted what it called its, quote, special responsibilities for the maintenance of international peace and security, end quote, rather than acting under Chapter 7. Given the inability so far of the, members of, the Security of, of the members of the United Nations to provide for a meaningful reform of the Security Council, including of Article 27, one has to face the challenge that states increasingly attempt to circumvent the limitations inherent in the voting system by either choosing different fora for decision making or by concluding treaties that attempt, in one way or another, to get around the limitations inherent in the veto. Thus, for example, one might refer to the attempt to strengthen the role of the G20. Yet, even setting aside the fact that the G20 has to date mainly focused on economic issues, it must be noted that this group is not in a position to adopt legally binding measures. To do this, states would still be required to come back to the Security Council with the voting system enshrined in Article 27. Furthermore, it is worth noting that the Rome Statute, creating the International Criminal Court, and the Kampala Amendment thereto, relating to the crime of aggression, both display features that demonstrate the unwillingness of large parts of the international community of states to continue to accept the veto power underlying Article 27. As to the Rome Statute, Article 16 thereof provides that the jurisdiction of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, other than in regard of the crime of aggression, may only be suspended if the Security Council expresses verbis requests the court not to start or continue certain specific proceedings. This inclusion of this provision, which aimed at reversing the veto, means that the consensus of all permanent members, plus the consent of at least four more members of the Council, is needed in order to prevent the ICC from exercising its otherwise existing treaty-based jurisdiction. Any of the five permanent members, as well as seven non-permanent members, 
can thus prevent the Council from temporarily barring the ICC from exercising its jurisdiction. A reversal of the veto, which became crucial when the United States considered seeking a renewal of Security Council Resolutions 1422 of 2002 and 1487 of 2003, which had barred the prosecution by the ICC of personnel acting under a United Nations peacekeeping or peace enforcement mandate. Similar issues arose as to the inclusion in the Rome Statute of the Crime of Aggression in Kampala in 2010. Originally, the ILC had proposed to include in the future Statute of the ICC a provision under which any proceeding dealing with an act of aggression or connected therewith shall not be taken up unless the Security Council had previously made a determination that the state in question had committed an act of aggression. Yet, this approach was unacceptable for many states for two reasons. First, it would have, it would have seriously limited the ability of the ICC to deal with instances where the crime of aggression had allegedly been committed. Moreover, article, given Article 27 of the Charter, it would have also de facto prevented the ICC from ever dealing with acts of aggression allegedly committing by nationals of one of the five permanent members or of nationals of states which are allies to a permanent member. In this way, it was indirectly Article 27 of the Charter which ultimately led to the situation de legalata in which the crime of aggression is excluded from the list of crimes with regard to which the ICC may exercise its jurisdiction. Finally, the Kampala 2010 Review Conference, for the reasons just set out, decided to include a new Article 15 bis into the Rome Statute dealing with the exercise of jurisdiction of the, over the crime of aggression. Under the new Article 15 bis paragraph 6 of the Rome Statute, as adopted in Kampala, once it has entered into force, the prosecutor shall first ascertain whether the Council has made a determination of an act of aggression committed by the state concerned. Yet, even where it has not made any such determination within six months, where the Council therefore has not acted, the prosecutor may still proceed with the investigation in respect of a crime of aggression subject solely to an authorization by the ICC's pretrial division. While the Council is limited to the option of, interrupting, of then interrupting the proceedings for a period of 12 months in accordance with Article 16 of the Rome Statute, which, as mentioned before and however, reverses the veto system, even on a matter which goes to the core of the Security Council powers under Chapter 7 of the Charter. On the whole, and given the bleak prospects for a relevant reform of the Security Council, both as to its composition and its voting procedure, taking place in the next few years, there is a growing danger that emerging states not appropriately represented in the organ, in the Security Council, will increasingly attempt to bring about a chain of events which could, in the long run, reduce significantly the relevance of the Security Council. It is thus in the interests of all members of the Security Council, especially its permanent members, to demonstrate that even under the current Article 27 of the Charter, the Security Council is in a position to act responsibly. In that regard, Article 27, Paragraph 3 and Article 27, Paragraph 3, Clause 2 and relevant obligations under general international law are important parameters when voting in the Security Council and, in particular, 
when exercising the veto. This brings me to the end of my presentation. I thank you very much for your kind attention.